they could do whatever they liked essentially. They could walk in there and make you put the hammer down then hit you with a kosh. They could punch you in the face. They could do whatever they liked. And he says, do you remember me? And do you remember what you told me the first time we met? And Sinfield said, what was that? And Walker said, you told me they should have hanged you too, you bastard. And it is a heartbreaking story of sort of accidental cruelty, really. In a sense, no one's fault, and in a sense, everyone's fault. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Last week, we looked at the hanging of Ronald Ryan and the events that led up to it. That is, the notorious escape from Pentridge Prison, in which a prison officer was shot dead, and the subsequent crimes, and then the arrest of the two most wanted men in the English-speaking world, Ronald Ryan and Peter Walker. So much for Ronald Ryan. It's a very well-known story. But the story of Peter Walker, the tough kid who went over the wall with him and was dragged along with him, that hasn't really been told. And now that Peter Walker has died as an old man, scarred, but still not scared. We're going to tell the story of what happened next. Now, Peter Walker, to me, is a tragic figure for several reasons. True, he didn't hang like Ronald Ryan, so he's not tragic in that sense. He lived to tell the tale, although he, I have to say he didn't tell it. Peter Walker is the other guy. He's the, the sort of junior burger in the Ronald Ryan story. But he didn't face up to his demons for a few weeks and then die on a trapdoor with a rope around his neck. He had to go to H Division in Pentridge in the 60s. H Division was called Hell Division. It was called Hell Division because it was like hell. It was worse for him because Peter Walker, by this stage, age 25, so he's the same age as, you know, a mature age apprentice or a very young trainee in some businesses. He was seen by all the prison officers who worked there as the enemy. He had been in an escape in which a prison officer had died, had been killed. And so they basically tortured him. He was thrown into solitary, into a solitary cell. A prison officer who knew him then, a man called Des Sinfield that I've known for many years, a tough man. Des Sinfield was a former army man. He was personally tough. He wasn't above belting crooks if they gave trouble. He was no shrinking violet. But he felt sorry for Peter Walker particularly and also for some of the other people who were in H Division. And one of the reasons he felt sorry for Peter Walker was that Walker, he would be denied extra clean water in a cup or a bucket or whatever if he wanted a drink in his cell he would have to extract it from the toilet cistern or flush it down the toilet and catch it with a cup. And that would be all he'd have to drink for X hours a day. The only water he could use to wash would be that extracted from the toilet system, which anybody who's seen that excellent film, Dead Man Walking, will realise that that's a thing that happened on death row in some places. He would sleep on a, a very rough, crude bed with just a coir, I call it coir matting. I think it's sort of like a rough doormat stuff. And one, I think one sort of very rough blanket. Freezing in winter, probably hot in summer. 
when he went outside to work, he had to work in the labour yards as they used to do, hard labour. You got years and years of jail with hard labour. The hard labour was you walked into a labour yard. When the prison officer said, pick up the hammer, you would pick up whichever hammer he told you. There was a large sledgehammer, great big heavy one, and a smaller one. It was actually harder work with the smaller hammer because the smaller hammer was lighter and it wouldn't crush the rock very efficiently, so you had to swing it harder. So it was very hard to meet your quota of crushed rock when you were breaking up big lumps of bluestone into little bits of bluestone. They would order you to break rocks, and you'd break rocks and work for hours, and you'd get blisters, and then you'd get calloused hands and so on. And if you stopped to wipe your brow, they'd discipline you, they could do whatever they liked, essentially. They could walk in there and make you put the hammer down then hit you with a cosh. They could punch you in the face. They could do whatever they liked, essentially. It was a very sadistic place. And the people who worked in it, by and large, except for those who were still alive to sue us, not them, they were good guys, but the others that are dead now, many of them were sadistic. And I'm told by prison officers of the day that the H Division officers hung around together. They went to the mess together. They ate together, they went to the pub together and they socialised only with each other not with the prison officers from around the prison because they saw it as a special place where they did special things and things like at the end of the shift of hard labour the prisoners such as Peter Walker and others would have to walk a plank now this is like in the navy, this was some sort of ancient naval thing used in the prisons it was like something from the 1830s it really was a 19th century system. They would have to walk up a narrow plank of Oregon timber, which was springy, and they would have to salute the chief officer's cat. There was a black cat there, and they would have to salute the cat and at the same time not knock their hat off because that was an infraction of the rules. They would have to pick up their plate of food, which was prepared for them from a thing called a hot box, turn around perfectly like a soldier and march down the plank which would be springy, and hold their food in one hand and then go to their cell and so on and so on. It was an extraordinarily uh, debasing, humiliating and painful business. And it was worse for Peter Walker because he was the man they blamed for George Hodgson's death, although the actual killer had been hanged. And every other day, he would be knocked over and belted or kicked or punched or whatever. And he did the hardest jail that anyone's done since a contemporary of his called William John O'Mealy, who was a police killer, cop killer. O'Mealy was so knocked about in H Division that according to those who knew him, he was almost robotic. When he finished in H Division and was sent to Shepparton, they said he moved robotically. He was brain damaged, like a punch-drunk boxer from all the... Um, brain trauma he'd suffered by being belted so often with truncheons and so on. And so this was what happened to people who bucked against authority. Peter Walker did not get brain damaged. He was admired ultimately because he copped everything stoically. He never lost his temper. He accepted it and just took it. He was calm. He knew that one day it would end and that he would move through the system. And according to my sources, they say that as officers left Pentridge, 
there was a bit of a turnover, you know, some would leave, some would retire, whatever, that people who had actually worked with George Hodgson started to leave and then it didn't seem as relevant to be cruel to Peter Walker. After, I think, nine years in H Division, or thereabouts, some years, he was moved over to another division, I think B Division, which was just for normal hard-ass crooks, and he was there for some years. He worked in the brush factory. They used to make things like scrubbing brushes, and you had to poke the hard straw wire stuff through the piece of wood and stitch it in place or whatever. And it was very hard work and hard on your fingers. But he worked in the brush factory in the industry yards, and eventually he was sent to Bendigo Prison in this would be by about the very late 70s or, in fact, perhaps 1980, he was sent to Bendigo. And by this stage, he'd served probably 12 years, let's say, in Pentridge, something like that. And he still owed quite a lot of years. I think he might have been sentenced to a a big lot of years, but ultimately would serve 19 with good behaviour because he was pretty well behaved. And at Bendigo, He gets off the van, the prison van from Pentridge, with some other heavy crooks who have been sent to Bendigo to sort of put them back into normal prison society. And the first person he claps eyes on is Des Sinfield, the officer I mentioned earlier. And Des Sinfield had been transferred to Bendigo a couple of years earlier. And he's, uh, I think, a senior officer or similar. And it was his job to read the warrants. They had to read the warrants to each prisoner as they get out of the van and say, your name is Bill Smith, you're here on this, to serve out this sentence, blah, blah, blah. Part of the ritual of prison. Walker and he had not seen each other since the 1960s back in Pentridge. But Walker recognises Sinfield immediately and he says, do you remember me? And do you remember what you told me the first time we met? And Sinfield said, what was that? And Walker said, you told me they should have hanged you too, you bastard. <laughs> and he remembered what Sinfield had told him. Anyway, Sinfield laughed and he said, well, don't worry about that. See you later. And the funny thing was that Sinfield, tough ex-army guy, he formed a bit of a liking for Peter Walker. He said he was highly intelligent. He was smart. He was funny. And he said, while we were dealing with each other in front of other officers or crooks, you know, he'd call me boss or sir and I'd call him Walker. But when we talked to each other sort of more privately, he'd be joking with me and I'd joke with him and he'd do Maxwell Smart impersonations from television. By this stage, he was watching television in the wonderful open world of Bendigo Prison and he loved Maxwell Smart and he could recite all these funny lines and everything. And so he would call... There's Sinfield Max, and Sinfield would call him by a nickname. I think one of the names they called him was The Nose. He had quite a long, pointy nose. Walker, so the other crimson officers used to call him The Nose, among other things. But Sinfield said this man is quite a high-quality person, despite what he's done. He doesn't hang around with idiots. He doesn't talk garbage. He keeps to himself. He's tough, and we know what side he's on. But he's okay. If you treat him fair, he'll treat us fair. And so Sinfield made sure that he was regarded as a trustee. He was a good tradesman, this bloke. 
we'll go into his background in a minute, but he'd learnt a, a fair bit about working on farms and things as a young fella and was a good painter, a good carpenter and good with electrical stuff. He could wire up buildings and all that. And so Sinfield would take him outside to do community work and they'd repaint a hall or a something or they'd fix up carpentry that needed doing. And he said, while we're outside, I'd supervise him. But he said, we'd go back to my house, his own family house in Bendigo, and we'd have morning tea or afternoon tea and my wife would make cakes and stuff because the sort of food he'd never got in jail. He would really enjoy it, just something simple like tea cake or scones. And he said he was really clean, he was really polite, really respectful, did everything right. And he said he was the sort of guy that I would have given him a job doing anything. He just was a really proficient, efficient guy, and I I liked him. But I was on one side of the fence and he was on the other. He was a hard criminal, I was a hard officer, and that's the way it was. And he said he eventually got out, Walker eventually got out, in about 1984, that was about the 19-year mark, he'd formed a, a relationship with a woman called Faye, who was his de facto wife until this very day, I think. And he said when he got out, he drove around to my house in Eagle Hawk, where I lived at the time, and I wasn't home, but he knocked on the door and spoke to my wife, and I think he introduced Faye, the partner, and said, you know, I'm off to a good start and wish you all the best, Mrs. Sinfield, and that was that. And Des Sinfield didn't see much of him after that. He didn't sort of seek him out. But one day he was at Eagle Hawk Tip. Sinfield, the officer, was emptying a trailer, and a car pulls in with another trailer next to him, backs in next to him, and out hops a familiar figure, and it's Peter Walker. And Peter Walker picks up a shovel and walks towards Des Sinfield, and Sinfield having worked in prisons for, you know, 30 years, he thought, oh, I hope he's not going to hit me with a shovel. He just wondered, you know. And he said, ah, oh, g'day, Pete, what's happening? And Walker said, g'day, boss, um, shook his hand, said, do you want a hand? Jumped up on the trailer, helped him empty the trailer of the rubbish and the dirt and stuff, and helped him sweep it off, and then went back to do his own job. And he said he ran into him once or twice after that at Bendigo, but they sort of drifted apart because they they weren't really socialising together. And that was sort of the end of that. But Walker kept his nose fairly clean, but what he really did was he was still up to no good here and there. And he did go back to jail later. He got into trouble in the 80s. I think he got caught with a cannabis crop that he was growing at Kyneton, where he might have had a fruit and veggie shop, and he refused to dob anyone else in. He had associates mixed up in the cannabis crop, and he might have had guns or something that belonged to them, but he would not dob them in. He then gets out, and he does certain things, and a long time later, in 2013, at the age of 74... He's arrested again in connection with a, a speed lab, I think, up in a little tiny town in the Mallee. I think it was the Mallee. Yeah, Pete, anyway. It's either the Mallee or the Wimmera, but it's the edge of nowhere. And he'd leased or rented some sort of empty building, a bit like Snowtown, you know, the Snowtown story, some empty bank building or something. And he and others were involved in making amphetamines. And he was 
grabbed and again he would not dob anybody else in and buy his way out of trouble by talking to the police. He was sentenced to seven years and he had four years and four months minimum. This at the age of 74, but never talked about it, never spoke, no information, just did his time. And while he was inside, and this is very recent times, the government in its wisdom decided that it would deport every person in Australia who had sort of a criminal record who wasn't an Australian citizen. And one of the people caught up in that net wasn't just Dusty Martin's dad, the rebel spiky guy who got sent back to New Zealand, along with a heap of other no-good Kiwis who really upset the New Zealanders when they all got sent home. But one of the people caught up in the net was Peter Walker. And the reason why... Peter Walker, you know, had been sent out here on a ship when he was eight years old. And it is a heartbreaking story of sort of accidental cruelty, really. In a sense, no one's fault, and in a sense, everyone's fault. And we'll be back after this. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Peter Walker and his two brothers, older one, Derek, that became a policeman, and a younger one called Brian, they were the sons of a, a woman called Alma Walker who was married to a violent and drunken soldier called Bob Walker. Bob Walker was a driver in the Queen's Regiment in uh, England and he was a drunk and a wife beater and his wife Alma became so depressed about being beaten up that one day the kids woke up in their council flat or whatever in some poor part of London, I think it was, and they could smell the gas and they went down and they found their mother dead. She'd suicided, gassed herself. She was 33. She left these three little boys. Their father was no good. Their father had caused this. Their father decided he couldn't look after them. Can you believe this? This is what happened. So ultimately, it's their father's fault. The children were taken by an Anglican charity, the Anglican Church, some sort of charitable arm of the church, took them and said, oh, beauty, we'll put them on our list of people to send to Australia because we send a lot of kids out there that aren't having a good time here. It'll be much better for them over there and here's some photos of where they'll go. And, you know. and the photos look good because you know there was in Melbourne at that stage St John's Boys' Home out at Canterbury. It was an old, old mansion that had been left to the church by a very wealthy person. It was called St John's, partly because obviously there was a St John, but partly because the man who'd left the mansion was called John, <laughs> but his widow bequeathed the mansion, which is in Baldwin Road, Canterbury, and I think it runs right across to Rochester Road, so it spanned that entire block, a very big place. She left it to the Anglican Church as a boy's home on the condition that it be called St John's. And there was also, allied with that, 
another property where babies and toddlers could go, and it might have been called St James or something. And they had another property down at Mornington or something like that. And they were also associated with a training farm up at Tatura in the country. Now, these three little boys, uh, by this stage, it's the end of 1949, I think Derek probably 12. By this stage, Peter, the one we're talking about mostly, is eight, and their little brother, Brian, is three or four. They come here, they're sort of split up because they're different ages. They're brought up in the boys' homes. I think Brian was sent off to the toddler's place, and I, I don't know that his older brother's. They hardly saw him after that, I think. I think that's true to say. They hardly saw their little brother again. Peter certainly never saw their father again, even though he visited Australia later on. He never saw his father again. So from the age of eight, this kid, Peter Walker, is in a boy's home and he's exposed to the sort of treatment which all these years later is being revealed in the commissions into abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse and emotional abuse that went on in these homes and these institutions because as grand as they looked on the outside with their wonderful old buildings and all the rest of it and big gardens and all that, in a sense, the children that went through them were sort of cannon fodder. They became, to an extent, like slave labour. Many of them were sent out to work on farms later and were treated pretty badly, not because that was the policy of the people that set this up, but because the calibre of the people that worked for them, the officers, the guards, the, the management, the sort of people who would take a job in such a place, it probably attracted the wrong sort of people. Um, one of the sort of people that would attract would be work-shy adults who liked the idea of ordering children around, work-shy adults who weren't actually smart enough to be teachers but could wear a uniform and tell kids what to do and discipline said children. And it would also attract pedophiles, as we know from what we know nowadays. And at nearly all these institutions, including St John's in Canterbury, some children, if not all children, but some children were abused in various ways. And there is no doubt that Peter Walker, from what he said later to some people, not many, was the product of a place where children were abused, including him. His older brother, Derek, survived it and joined the police force and, and became a respectable married man and so on. Peter had been younger when he went in, I think traumatised by the death of his mother. I think he'd discovered her body, so he was traumatised. And if something traumatic happens to you when you are seven years old, they say, psychologists say, it's worse than if you are three years old or you are 17. It's a very bad age, a very impressionable age. And so it set him on a path of self-destruction in a sense. He would be influenced by the tougher kids who came in. Some kids who were sent to the place would be young offenders. They'd got into trouble at school or at home. They were thieves or runaways or car thieves or whatever. They'd be placed in these homes too. Often on religious lines, the, the bad Anglican kids would go to the Anglican home, the bad Selvos kids would go to the Selvo home and the bad Catholic kids would go to the Catholic homes. That's the way it sort of worked in those days. And they all had some bad staff members who did bad things to the kids. Peter Walker 
ends up, he goes to school at the Baldwin State, then he goes to Richmond Tech, then he, he's sent up to a training farm school at Tatura at 14 years old, so he doesn't get a chance to go through and be educated better, even though he had the brains. He learns to milk cows and, you know, swing a pick or whatever. He works on a farm at Cobram. He has already drifted into the lifestyle of the other bad young guys that he's with. He steals a car, you know, illegal use. The first crime that all these kids did was to steal a car because he'd learnt to hotwire it. Somebody showed him how to hotwire a Holden. He steals a car. He gets done for it at Cobram. He gets, I think, three months inside on £39 fine, which would be a fair bit of money then. He does his time. He gets out. He gets done again, illegal use of a car and possession of an unlicensed rifle. He's stepped up a bit, as they do. By this stage, he's, say, 17. That's at Kilmore Court. He gets so many months inside. He gets out. He goes to New South Wales. He does a burglary a week, and he becomes a fully-fledged petty crook. He gets grabbed. He does two years in Long Bay. This is a crime apprenticeship he's serving. Now, this young bloke, he looked really good. He's a smart young fella, but he'd basically been apprenticed for this since he was eight years old. He was a product of a system, and the system it was a terrible thing, really, because it kept producing these kids that turned to crime. So many of them did, and they weren't all from criminal backgrounds. A lot of them were just kids who'd hit a rough trot. Their parents couldn't look after them. Their parents had too many children. I know of one family who'd put seven children into orphanages because mum and dad were young. They'd had seven kids in seven years, starting out as teenagers. Mum and dad drank too much, PTSD from the father, couldn't cope with the children, put them in an orphanage. And some of those kids suicided. Some became criminals. And one of them became a very prominent artist, Ivan Durant. But they weren't orphans. It's just that their parents couldn't or wouldn't look after them. They're terrible stories. When Walker gets banged up in Long Bay, he's in there with serious crooks, serious crimes. He gets out. He's that little bit more hardened. He comes back to Melbourne. He actually does a good thing. He moves in with his brother, Derek, the young policeman, who's married. And for a little while... He's got life back on the rails. He's got a job and he's living a regular life. He turns up for dinner and breakfast and all that. But then Derek says, well, I'm going to buy a house over at Doncaster. He might have been transferred, but anyway, he gets a house over in Doncaster, away from the western suburbs where they were. I think they're at Brooklyn or something like that. And he moves across with his wife. And so our mate Peter, who's uh, 21 or something, he's at a loose end and he just rents rooms in DOS houses or whatever. And he gets on the punt and he gets on the piss and he loses his money at the trots and he runs up debts to bookmakers, the whole catastrophe. And what he does is, oh, I'll, um, I'll rob a bank. So he tries to rob the Bank of New South Wales in Brooklyn. He's 21. He's got a gun. In the Bank of Brooklyn, there is a manager and an accountant who have got pistols. They end up in a gunfight. They end up grabbing the young would-be robber. He's now done a very serious thing, and he is sentenced to 12 years with nine on the bottom, I think. 12 years with nine minimum. Pretty tough sentence, but 
you know, that's what happened if you go robbing banks and shooting at people. So by this stage, he might be 23 by the time all this happens. He's banged up in Pentridge. And there, this young, tough, willing, good-looking kid who's come through the boys' home so he knows the system, he understands how to live in a community. He's not a greenhorn and he's also done two years in Long Bay. He's in there and he meets another armed robber called Ronald Ryan. And Ronald Ryan is 40. Ronald Ryan is a tough guy. He is tough. He looks tough. He acts tough. Ronald Ryan is probably reasonably charismatic and Ryan is full bottle on trying to escape. And that is why Peter Ryan got sucked in to following the older man in the escape attempt. And had that not happened, it's conceivable that Peter Walker might have done his time in the minimum time, got out of jail and possibly with the help of, say, his brother and others, he might have led a better life. Later on in jail, many years later, after he survived H Division and went back to mainstream population of the jail, he got involved in acting in the prison players. He read a lot and he showed that he had the brains to be a lot better than another dumb crook. And you say, well, that's the story of Ryan's little mate. But while Mark Butler and I were researching this story to write for the paper, Mark Butler spoke to a source. And the source, I believe, is probably a criminal, an intelligent and articulate criminal. And this intelligent, articulate criminal has been banged up with Peter Walker in a detention centre, a migrant detention centre, because when Walker was let out, notionally released from jail a couple of years ago on his last ever crime. The government decided that he would be deported and they put him in a detention centre while they went through it all. And had Walker not developed a serious illness with his lungs, I don't know if he had COVID, it might have been more emphysema or something like that, but the illness meant that he couldn't fly. The doctor said he will die if he flies. Very dangerous. He can't fly. But the government kept him locked up in the detention centre as sort of an illegal alien. And although his only family members, his loving de facto wife, his stepchildren, his only friends and family were in Australia, he had no relatives left in the UK. He'd been here since 1949 as an eight-year-old child. The government was red hot on the idea of deporting him, which seemed to me probably an act of bureaucratic bastardry. It was only very recent times that I was contacted by a very nice lawyer who'd been talking to my colleague Mark Butler, and this lawyer said, would you like to come and talk to, if not to Peter himself, to his partner, Faye, about his life and the plight that he's in. I said, yes, we will, we'll do that. But within a matter of days, Peter Walker died. I, in fact, asked this lawyer, I said, is he really that sick or is he putting it on? He said, oh, no, he's not putting it on. He's lost so much weight. He's very ill. He's on the oxygen and all the rest. He said, he's very ill, so you better come and see him. Well, the next message from the lawyer is he, he died. Peter Walker died. And so Peter Walker died 
By the time this podcast goes to air, I think his funeral plans will be completed and we will leave listeners with one last story. Mark Butler was told this by the source who had befriended Peter Walker in the detention centre. And the story that Peter Walker told was this. He said back in the 80s, when he was apparently going straight, he said he pulled a very good burglary on a bookmaker's house. He wouldn't say exactly where, but it was allegedly a prominent bookmaker in Melbourne, I imagine. They knew that the bookmaker had left the house. They must have been watching the place, obviously, and they must have seen the guy leave the house, and they might have even had somebody follow him or something to know where he was, but they knew he was out of the house, and they knew his wife had gone to work. She must have gone to work every day at the same time. She'd gone to work. So they break into the house, they're experts. They ransack the house. They find $55,000 in cash, which is what some bookmakers would sometimes have hidden around their house would be a large amount of cash, which would probably be black money, money that the tax department did not know about. Surprising as this might seem. And this is the 80s. While they're counting the money and getting ready to leave, they hear something upstairs. It's a double-storey house. They go upstairs. Walker is absolutely angered and shocked to find a baby girl in a crib, in a cot. And the baby girl's crying. She's obviously distressed. Her nappy is wet and it is filthy. It is a soiled nappy. And she's obviously thirsty and hungry. And he's amazed. And he goes and gets a towel and he gets a face washer and warm water. He changes the baby's nappy, wipes it down, changes her, gets her back in the cot. He goes downstairs, opens the fridge, and there are six bottles of formula, formula baby milk. Six baby bottles. He takes one upstairs and he gives it to the child and she eagerly drinks the milk and uh, satisfies her and she's, she's okay then. She's not as thirsty and not as hungry. And Peter Walker, according to Peter Walker, and I have no reason not to believe this because there are many details in this story. He didn't say 50,000, for instance. He said 55,000. I find that interesting. He said six bottles of formula in the fridge, which sounds like a day's worth plus a bit. Sounds right to me. That's what the mother of the child might have left in the fridge. But apparently the father or whoever was supposed to look after the baby had left the house for some reason. Don't know why. Walker picks up a lipstick and he goes to the mirror above the mantelpiece in the living room and he writes on it something like, If you ever neglect this baby again, I will come back and kill you. That's what he wrote on the mirror. I've spoken to various bookmakers about this, and they said, well, we don't know who it was, but it sounds right. It could well have happened. And, of course, it would never have been reported to the police (laughs) because it'll be black money. So there'll be no record of it, but it does sound right. It's one of those lingering mysteries and we'll be back after this to finish our story access a world of true crime podcasts on crimex plus where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases every week we're waking up to a dead woman a dead mother sister auntie grandmother 
It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. That is the story of Peter Walker, a very hard man who in some ways had his heart in the right place. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode.